Hey everybody, welcome to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast. This is episode number two. I'm Brian, that's Ross. Ross, today we're in week number two of our What Mormons Believe series. Last time we talked about what Mormons believe about God. People, if they want to check out these resources, you can find it all at pursuegod.org forward slash Mormonism. Today though, Ross, we're going to talk about what Mormons believe about Scripture. Why are we going so quickly to Scripture? Why is scripture so important in faith well this is a this is really important we talked last week about god because that makes sense as a starting point for everything else the idea of god is so fundamental but but how do we know what god is like how do we know anything about god he is it's only because he's revealed himself to us others we can speculate or philosophize about the nature of god but we can only really know what god is like based on what he's revealed to us, and so that's why we have to step back for a second and look at Scripture, which we believe is the written Word of God. So we want to look at how Mormonism looks at Scripture, and the whole larger, really the whole larger idea of revelation in general, um, and because that's, that's ultimately going to be the way we know what we know. We know what's true, or how we measure what ideas come up, and whether they're credible or not. Now, when whenever we talk about what Mormons believe, and we talked a little bit about this last time, we have to draw a sti- distinction between what what the official teaching of the Mormon Church is and what the average Mormon on the street would believe about something. So last time we talked about what Mormons believe about God, and and, and some Mormons might say, "Oh, well, I'm a Mormon, but I don't believe those things about God." Right? So there might be a little bit of difference on this topic, Ross. Would you say that most Mormons would agree with what we're about to say that they believe about it? Or is there some differing in terms of sort of street Mormonism? Yeah, there, I think that most Mormons would believe the things that we're going to say about the uh, Scripture and the Bible and Revelation, because we're st- keeping it pretty basic here in this series anyway. Um, the one thing that, we're, that I would note is that there's a movement in Mormonism right now uh, more toward the Bible— and toward accepting the Bible and wanting to learn the Bible. Now, it's not from that's not necessarily from official Mormonism, Mormon sources, or or from the institutional church, but within the rank and file of people who are LDS, especially in Utah where we live, there's a much there's a renewed interest in the Bible. Okay, so let's let's dive into it. Three things we're going to be talking about throughout this episode. And the first thing is that Mormons believe the Bible is not sufficient. So Christians believe that the Bible is sufficient. We only believe in in one work, the Bible, the Old and New Testament of the Bible. That's it. There's nothing else that rises to the level of Scripture for Christians, for evangelical Christians, but Mormons don't have that same belief. They believe the Bible is not sufficient, that there's more. Yeah, so just what we mean by that word sufficient is, is that it's enough that the Bible alone is enough. And Christians believe that, Mormons believe that um, more Scripture is needed and has been given by God, and so the Bible alone uh, would not reflect all of God's will uh, in, in, in the person's life, and so they would say the Bible alone uh, isn't going to give us everything God wants us to know. And so uh, they have. we'll talk about the other Scriptures that they have added, but in the Book of Mormon... Um, God is quoted in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi chapter 29, Wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all my words. 
neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. So the Book of Mormon claims that God is saying, yes, there is more scripture out there, and the Bible's not enough. Okay, and so so what what they have come up with then, what the Mormons do recognize are four standard scriptures. So so they do recognize the Bible as one of the four. Right. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit. But then they also recognize these other three books. The Book of Mormon, most people have heard of that or maybe even have a copy of that. The, the third is the Doctrine and Covenants, and then the fourth is the Pearl of Great Price. So help, Ross, help us to understand that people who maybe are new to this, maybe evangelical Christians out there who don't know anything about those other three things, what are those? Yeah, that's in a nutshell. The Book of Mormon uh, claims to be an ancient record kept by the people of God in the American continent. It starts off with, with some people leaving Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem in 589 B.C., at leaving Jerusalem and God leading them to the Americas. And so it's the record of their, that, that, that family and the civilizations that came out of that family, um, supposedly lost for, for centuries and, um, and revealed to and through Joseph Smith. So the, Pearl of, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants consists of revelations that God gave to, according to the LDS Church, that God gave to leaders of the Mormon Church. Now, um, 98% of them were penned by Joseph Smith, and there's a couple of later ones from later leaders. But So it's uh, revelations given to lead the Church in its initial formation. Okay, so wait, hold on, let me ask a question about that. Are they still adding to the Doctrine and Covenants? Like, the, the current prophet, we'll talk about this in a second, but the, can the current prophet add to the canon of their Scripture? Theoretically, yes. In practice, they haven't added anything to the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, the most recent revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants is right early, right around 1900. Mm. And, and so very little has been added, Only, like I said, only a couple since Joseph Smith. And so theoretically they could add to it, but practically speaking, uh, they, they aren't, they don't, but it's not impossible. Okay, and then what's this fourth one? What's, what's the Pearl of Great Price all about? It's a kind of a, com a compendium, a, a compilation of shorter works. It includes um, a book called the Book of Moses, which is kind of Joseph Smith's rewrite of the first chapters of Genesis. It includes the book called the Book of Abraham, which uh, Mormons believe um, is a translation of some Egyptian scrolls that Joseph Smith acquired in the 1830s, um, Egyptian papyri. And um, it also includes um, Joseph Smith's translation of one of the chapters of Matthew's Gospel, and it includes the story of Joseph Smith and the forthcoming of Mormonism and the Book of Mormon. And the, so it's kind of a catch-all of smaller books. Okay, I've, I've got so many questions for you right now. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to try to ask the questions that our listeners probably have right now if they're not very familiar with this. Okay, so first of all, is, so is this why Mormon Bibles are so big? Yeah, they, they call it the quad, okay. or the quad has all four of them in one, in one volume, and it must be about six inches thick, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes they have a triple combination that has the other three and the Bible separate. Okay, ne my next question. I got a million of them. Mm -hmm. My next question, what translation? Okay, because I know that jo there's, a, there's such a thing as the Joseph Smith translation. Right. So apparently Joseph Smith was working on his own translation of the Bible. Tell me a little bit more about that, and is that the one that you'll find in the quad? Yeah, uh, so Joseph Smith, uh, 
you know, uh, we're going to see in a moment that the, the Mormons believe that the Bible has been corrupted. And so Joseph Smith set out to set the record straight and to, and to correct all the problems that were in the Bibles that we have today. Um, it's, so Joseph Smith translation, as you mentioned, it's not one of the standard works um, for a variety of reasons. There are different reasons that different people will give. Some will say, well, Joseph Smith never finished it. I personally believe it's not in the standard works because it's not very credible. Hmm. And um, the, the copyright has always been owned by a splinter group mm. of, of the Mormon Church, that not the, not the main Utah Mormon Church. <clears throat> but that's, that's a whole other discussion. The Mormon, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uses their official version as the King James Version of the Bible. Now mm. they have, in their version, it's... Uh, it's word for word, King James Version. They haven't altered anything in the main, but they use footnotes that, that connect it to the Book of Mormon and the other Mormon standard works. Okay, so I, I remember years ago being down in Salt Lake at the museum or some, I can't remember where, it was the building right by the the temple and the tabernacle, which mm-hmm. one, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's called the Visitor Center, and the, it is kind of like a museum. Yeah, it's yeah. like a museum. Okay, so it's a visitor center, and at the time, I don't know if this is still a thing, but at the time, they had Joseph Smith's Bible on display, and it was opened up to Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, something in there, one of Paul's letters, and I specifically was appalled that Joseph Smith had literally just crossed out verses in his Bible is is that how he came up with the Joseph Smith translation? Yeah, pretty much. He just he just amended it as he saw fit. And so, see, this re- this reflects something about. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Or it reflects something about the nature of uh, the LDS view of Scripture. It's really our our third point today. But that is that the Mormons believe in continuing revelation. Mm-hmm that God continues to speak through his prophets like he did in the past. And so, in their view, the continuing revelation actually trumps the written scripture. Hmm. So, okay, so how, like, if I'm a Mormon, how can I be confident that my scriptures aren't going to change? Well, you can't, but it's okay, because it's, it's okay if they change, because if they change, they're changed because God spoke fresh new revelation that's more relevant or pertinent to us today. And so God is always willing to give us what we need today. That's, that's kind of their rationale. Huh. Boy, that, to me, that just puts so much faith in a man. I would really want to know more about Joseph Smith. Right. I'd want to know more. Prophets, or right? any of yeah. them. I'd want to know more because I know too many people. I know too many men. Human, I know too yeah. many leaders, yeah. Yeah. even good, godly people that I would not trust my eternity with. Right. To say, look, you can trump what I have here in God's written word in Scripture. Amen. Okay, so let Amen. me let me just I gotta just ask one more question about the yeah. Book of Mormon. Okay, so when when was because I've read the Book of Mormon, when was the when was the Book of Mormon when did it come about? Who wrote it? And why why does it use King James English? I'll just let you answer all those questions at will. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So according to the L- to the LDS story, it was originally started to be written in 600 BC, and it was written throughout the generations by this line of scribes passed down from one father to son or from one to another, uh, and inscribed in on on plates of gold or on metal, um, and different abridgments were made along the way. 
<clears throat> so finally, one final prophet of the Book of Mormon pulled it all together and created this one sort of um, record of uh, drawing from all the other records that the people of, of that uh, day had compiled, and he buried it in the ground. Now, um, in, in New York. In, in New York. New York State. In New York State. Now, that guy's name was Mormon. Okay. And so that's why it's the Book of Mormon. Right. It was a guy that was... And, uh, and can we see these plates today? We can't, we can't. We cannot. Okay, so on with the story. So Joseph Smith, uh, the, an angel appeared to him and told him where they were. Over a course of a few years, he was allowed to unearth the plates. And then he was, the story goes, he translated them into English. Now, there's different accounts of the methods that he used. That's a whole other conversation, too. But he translated them by the, by the power of God, by the power of revelation. He translated them into English and dictated to uh, different scribes who wrote down what he said. That's, what, that's the form of the Book of Mormon that we have today. So um, skeptics would argue that it all, is, it all came out of Joseph Smith's mind, and he's essentially the author, the one who, who invented, it, uh, invented it all. And so <clears throat> the, the, the idea is that when the translation was done, the golden plates were taken back up into heaven again. So we do not mm. have any kind of artifact. We have um, some of the original um, handwritten scribal notes that Joseph dictated. We have the original print version. Um, its type was set, and it was set in print, but we don't have the gold plates because they were removed. Now, the Mormons would say that there were certain people who had the privilege of seeing the golden plates or touching them, and they're the their, their, their witness or their, their affidavit to that effect is included in the Pearl of Great Price. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, okay. Now, so let me, let me get this straight. So the whole idea behind the Book of Mormon is it gives an answer in the 1800s. It gave an answer to how the American Indians got here. It's a big part of it, yeah. Right? And, and essentially the answer, the spiritual answer to that is that they're they're Jews, they're yeah. they're Jews from the before the the fall of of Judah, before Babylon destroyed Judah, um, a bunch of a family of Jews got on a got on a ship and came over. This is in the Old Testament mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. during the prophetic time in the Old Testament. They they came over here before Judah fell, and and so then they got to the Americas, and and there was nobody here in the Americas. That would, that's, yeah, that's the original story. Now, again, listeners, you can see we have so many things to discuss in this podcast. <laughs> right. So you want, to, you want to stay with us over the coming weeks, because the whole question of DNA and, and who was on the American continent and the relationship of the, of the group that, that came over from Israel... Uh, Judah to the people who may or may not have already been here and what their genetic makeup was. So uh, the relationship of that story with the actual identity of the Native Americans, mm -hmm. all those things are, are, would be, are great, and we'll discuss them at some point. Well, yeah, because even not forget DNA. I mean, we'll certainly talk about that in a future episode, but even just language. Even just the language, I would imagine then that the American Indians have language that is that sounds like Hebrew or pretty sim pretty close to it, right? You, you'd imagine you would the think. plates would be Hebrew, probably. You think, yeah, you would think. Um, and so, and there, yeah, I've got a million questions on this, but we'll <laughs> save it for another episode. Yeah, we'll have a few episodes just on the Book of Mormon itself and 
and some of the issues related to it. Yeah. But before we go on to this next thing, Ross, I just want to make sure we address this for traditional evangelical Christianity. Mm-hmm. So Mormons believe that the Bible is not sufficient, but Christians believe that the Bible is sufficient. Let's just talk about that for yeah, a second. Absolutely. So, so the the early Christian Church went through this extensive process of discerning which writings had the marks of Scripture, or in other words, had the marks of divine authority. And there were a lot of books that were written in that time frame with Christian themes and so forth that didn't make the cut. And so, so this process of canonization, which we, there's other resources that our readers can, our listeners can look at there, um, but the process of canonization helped to affirm the books that God had that God had divinely spoken to the church. And so it gives us a real strong sense of the of authority and legitimacy. And, um, and so that's been set for centuries, and it has served the church really well. And so we, we think that, that the Bible is unique, it stands alone. There's a lot of reasons why we think that. Again, there's huge conversations we could get into about why the Bible is reliable and authoritative and trustworthy. Um, but, just one simple thing is that, like, unlike the bo- other books that claim to be Scripture, the Bible's supported by history and archaeology. Mm-hmm. Again, that's another topic. We mm-hmm. can talk about Book of Mormon archaeology mm-hmm. versus biblical archaeology. But, but we have a lot of reasons why we believe the Bible is sufficient, and God has spoken, and, and that was enough. Yeah, so we believe that the, the canon of Scripture is closed, which means that there's, you don't have to, Christians don't have to wonder if they're going to have to trade in their Bible for the new improved version of yeah. it that adds a 67th book. Right. We believe that there are 66 books of the Old and New Testament, uh, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New Testament, and that is closed. You don't have to wonder if some prophet, if some teacher, uh, if some person claiming to speak from God, we don't have to wonder if they're speaking from God at that level of authority, right. because Scripture is established, it's set. And we don't have to wonder, like, oh, is there something that God wants us to know that we're missing? You mm. know, is there something else that, that I need in my Christian life to really have a greater relationship with God, or to really know more what God desires? Uh, is there something out there that we haven't figured out yet? No, it's, we have everything that we need. Uh, for God to speak to our lives. Yeah, and let's just add one more thing. We talk about all of this, by the way, in Lesson 1 of our Systematic Theology series at PursueGod.org. I encourage you to check it out. We talk about God's revelation. Uh, I think it's important to note here, Ross, that that Christians recognize that Jesus, not, not even the Bible, but Jesus is God's final revelation of himself to humanity. So we believe in Scripture, we look to Scripture, but more than Scripture, more than Scripture, we recognize that Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. Right, and that helps us understand the role that Scripture actually has, because um, the Scripture is is the witness of Jesus. The Old Testament tells us the history of God's work leading up to Jesus, and then the New Testament Gospels tell us about his life, his work, um, the epistles of the New Testament explain his message, the book of Acts, how his message spread, and then the, the rest of the letters describe how his people learned to follow his leading to pra- in the practical issues of life, and how they, the, how they solved doctrinal issues based on who Jesus was and what Jesus said. So the whole, the whole Bible is witness to Jesus, and so Jesus is the final revelation of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. God has spoken to us through His Son, 
uh, to give you the brief version of that. And so then the Bible's the source by which we know Jesus and what, by which he unfolds his revelation of himself to us. Yeah, I think it's important to, again, to say that for Christians and Mormons alike listening to this. If you're, you know, so many Mormons that come to our church, Ross, one of the, one of the probably the most often stated thing to me after a first-time Mormon comes to our church is they say, I learned more about Jesus today than I've learned in a lifetime of going to the Mormon church. And again, I, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to point fingers, I'm just making a comment about what people tend to people say. And I think that, yeah. the reason is because I think, even though the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right, it has Jesus Christ right in the name, my understanding is that most wards, most local congregations don't, don't talk much about Jesus and and Christianity, evangelical Christianity, biblical Christianity, is all about Jesus. Yep. It's not about a church. It's not about yep. even Scripture. It's about Jesus and a personal relationship with Jesus. Right. That's a great point to make when we're talking about God's revelation, mm-hmm. basically, that, that his ultimate revelation is Jesus. Okay. So number one, Mormons believe that the Bible is not sufficient. Number two, Ross, help us with this. This one gets me a little fired up. But Mormons believe that the Bible is corrupted. What, right. what does that mean? Well, they, they don't believe that the Bible has come down to us in a pure form. Um, that, so it can't ultimately be trusted. So they'll, they'll say things like um, that many plain and precious things have been removed from the Bible. Um, the, the, one of the Articles of Faith, which is found in the Pearl of Great Price, the scripture that we mentioned earlier, says that um, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Now, the issue really, the issue Joseph Smith had was not with translation, but what we would call today transmission. But, but, he, but he, Jesus, Joseph Smith's position was that ignorant translators, careless transcribers, designing and corrupt priests have committed many errors. That's a quote from one of his writings. And so the Mormons believe that the Bible can only be understood in light of LDS scriptures and in light of modern prophets. And so that's what led Joseph Smith to undertake that that whole translation of the Bible, because he felt like the Bible had been corrupted. And this really is part of the ethos of of the kind of Mormonism, is it's this idea that we can't trust... We can't trust our forebears. We can't trust the the earliest Christians. Like maybe the maybe the very earliest the apostles, the disciples. We can trust them. But but at some point there was a great apostasy, mm-hmm. and it was early on. It was a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. right? At my understanding, it was it was you know two thousand years it ago. It might have been the very in the, right at the end of the first generation of. Of, of Christianity. Of Christianity, yeah. and so and that's essentially what Joseph Smith was building this religion on. Right. He's saying, you can't trust any of those people, but you can right. trust me, right? and I'm the one that's going to restore the church, right? So it's a, it's a restoration. Joseph Smith says it's a restoration of the, the real, true, early church. Mm-hmm. It's a restoration of this, and, and so it kind of goes hand in hand to say, so even Scripture, which which was formulated and canonized in, in those first 400 years, right, A.D., right. That, that even the... We can't even trust the councils. We can't even right. trust the early Christian leaders right. beyond Peter and Paul and those guys. Right, because... Yeah, so, so then the, the common thinking is that not only what were, was the transcription process careless, 
And so we talk about how, you know, because ultimately, originally the Bible was handwritten, right? It's written manuscript, and so a manuscript had to be hand-copied to be distributed, and, and hand-copied again, and there's a whole chain of transmission where the manuscript is copied over and over and over again, or copies of copies and so forth are made. So, so that what the Joe Smith was saying is that not only was that transcription process careless, but he's saying that there were corrupt individuals who actually, uh, who actually inserted false teachings into the process itself, and so, um, and so anybody who wanted to could just change the 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 scripture in the process of of transcribing a copy of the manuscript, make it say whatever they wanted it to say. Now, I, I don't want to be cynical here, but, but what I've seen across many, many different um, non-traditional groups that introduce um, alternatives to traditional Christianity, whether it's Jehovah Witnesses or Latter-day Saints or whoever it might be, this is a common theme, that the Bible is undermined. And it makes sense, because if you want to introduce something um, innovative, that is different or new, or you want to establish your own authority as a spokesman for God, the only way to really do that is to undermine the authority of the Bible so that you can have space to establish your own. Mm -hmm. And so then it makes sense that Joseph Smith would start working on his own translation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, it does. Yeah. if this is what he believed, then here, let me, let me tell you which parts were, didn't work and which parts did work. But I could also see how that could become a problem. Well, it kind of backfired on him a little bit, mm -hmm. yeah, because some of the things that he, in, in his translation um, of the Bible, are just clearly, clearly made up. They're clearly out of mm -hmm. step with, with even um, the best scholarship for certain. And, um, you know, and there's all kinds of contradictions and things that, that he introduced even into the, into the Bible. So, so why, then, why then do you think Mormons put the King James Version in their quad, in the standard works? Is there something about the King James? You know, we know we, we both know King James-only Christians, right? Yeah, that people yeah. say, King James Version is the best version out there. Obviously, we, I don't believe that. I believe that there's, there's, uh, there are other versions. All, transla all translations have pros and cons to yeah. them. There's not one inspired translation. Right. Is there a reason that, that Mormons use that? Well, they, they, I'd have to speculate on why they made that decision, but I know that they're not the, they're not the King James-only types in terms of the arguments they make for the King James Version uh, as being uniquely inspired by God or whatever. But I, my suspicion is that because, and back to something that you alluded to earlier that we didn't, didn't really address, how much the Book of Mormon reflects King James Version kind of language, mm -hmm. because that was the prominent the prominent Bible translation in Joseph Smith's time. And I believe, well, first of all, much of the Book of Mormon is simply cut and pasted from the, from the King James mm -hmm. Version of the Bible, huge segments of the prophet Isaiah and so forth. And, so, and the rest of it is written in the and thou kind of Elizabethan type of language, like King James language. And so I think the King James Version is preferred among Mormons because it's close it more closely uh, matches the language of the Book of Mormon, so it kind of helps prop up the Book of Mormon. Right. Okay, so yeah, allow me to be cynical for a moment here, Ross. This is, this is what—maybe you have a better answer for this. Maybe I'm just not being gracious enough to my Mormon friends. But King, the King James 
version. The King James translation came out in the early 1600s, mm-hmm. and, and Joseph Smith claims to have found these plates and translated the Book of Mormon in the early to mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. That's 200 years. In the, 18, in the 1820s and 30s, people didn't speak in America. They didn't speak in King James English. That's not how they talked. That's correct. So why would a tra- why would a translation of ancient documents why would that translation come across to Joseph Smith in a language that was 200 years old? Yeah, that's a great question. Different different Mormon writers have tried to answer that in one way or another. Um, to me, the the question has not been satisfactorily answered by them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, again, the cynical answer is that Joseph Smith was trying to create credibility for his work right. by making it sound scriptural, so therefore sound authoritative. Yeah. Well, we'll get more into that when we talk about Joseph. we got a lot to a lot talk things, about so. with Joseph yeah. Smith and Brigham Young and some of the other leaders as well. But before we move on from this second point, that Mormons believe the Bible is corrupted, Ross, why do Christians believe that it's not corrupted? Right? Because there, there might be people listening right now who just are skeptical, they're not even Mormon, they would just say, yeah, what would you say, Pastor? Yeah. Why, would, yeah. why do you think it's not good? We know people. Everything you've been saying about Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, we could say that about people from 2,000 years ago. Right. Peter and James and John are at least people following, following them up. So some people might say, I can relate to Joseph Smith's skepticism, but these are probably people that just throw all of it out. Yeah, right? that's most likely the case. Well, first of all, two arguments. One is an argument with respect to the LDS position, and one is they cannot provide any specific example of any place the Bible's been changed. Mm. So if if they say, well, the Bible can't be trusted, I say, well, show me chapter and verse. Well, they won't. They can't. Well, isn't that what Joseph Smith was trying to do? He was trying to do it. But they don't even accept that. They don't don't acknowledge that. Because I think they recognize it would probably paint them into a corner a little bit. Yeah, it would. It would. Because now, now yeah. the rest of it, then we can say, okay, so that is authoritative, then. Yeah. So the re- the stuff he didn't cross out is the stuff that we can really take to the bank. Well, now we have something to stand. Even if we only have eighty percent of scripture, we still now can combat some of that. So there's something about that's I that's what that's why I believe they don't mm-hmm. accept the jo- Joseph Smith translation because they might be forced into saying that he wasn't inspired. Right. Or right. it wasn't. It's not fully accurate. So they take the King James version and say, "Well, take take it with a grain of salt." Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. But they can't tell you any specific place. And I, you know, this is I've always I've always said, look, based on kind of Joseph Smith's attempt to to fix the Bible. Well, what about the current modern day prophets? You know, you've got you've got a you've got supposedly a prophet of God leading your organization. Why don't they just fix the Bible? You know, wouldn't wouldn't God really want us to have the right, mm. the real original? You got the prophet, just fix it. You know, so so that creates a little bit of skepticism. But on our side, on the other side, we believe there's lots of evidence the Bible um, stands up against this claim of corruption. Because when you really look at a couple things, when you look at the the way that the transmission was was conducted, how scribes the meticulous um, rules that they followed and the practices that they put into place to make sure it did not get changed, that, that was pretty good, pretty high level of quality control. Um, and then we have all of these manuscripts that, that back each other up. 
We've got thousands of manuscripts. You compare them side by side. You say, oh, here we can see from these nine that here's a tenth one that, oh, an, a little bit of an error did slip in. Oh, well, well, we have these other nine ones to make sure that we know what the real reading should be. And then we have the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, um, which were discovered in, you know, right after World War II, but were written, uh, were copies of the Old Testament from about 100 B.C., when they were discovered, that's a span of almost 2,000 years. And you can compare them against the manuscripts that had been handed down from the Old Testament over, the, that, over all those centuries, and you see, oh, wow, n- no, that all these changes have not crept in. And we have, because we have this like time capsule of manuscripts from way back when, compare them to the manuscripts that we've had through the transmission process, and we go, oh, the two match up very favorably. And so that gives us a lot of confidence in the Bibles that we have. Yeah, let's drill down just a little bit more on that. So there was, uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the, in the mid-1900s, the oldest manuscript copy that we had of the book, let's say the book of Isaiah, that's the best example, mm-hmm. dated back to about 850-ish B, uh, AD. It was called the Masoretic Text, and that was the oldest scroll of Isaiah that we had, mm-hmm. eight, 850 AD, right? Now... Now these Dead Sea Scrolls are found. It turns out we have almost the entire book of Isaiah, right? Yeah. In, in, you know, there was more than that, but, that, but Isaiah w- was surprisingly intact. And so we were able to now compare the book of Isaiah, which, da- like you said, dated back to 100 BC. So almost a thousand years earlier, as far as a manuscript copy that we had of Isaiah, and Isaiah was probably written, what, in... Eight, it was about 600 BC. BC. Mm-hmm. So, so now we get from... from 800, 850 AD, the Masoretic text, to now we have an almost thousand-year-older copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And so I know skeptics at that time were saying, oh, I can't wait to see this comparison. Let's we're going to find out how much it changed in a thousand years. That's yeah. right. And, and again, not to our surprise, we found that it, it, that it, was, it was what something like 95% accurate. Yeah, more than that. More yeah. than that, and yeah. and it's and the the changes were just little scribal errors here and there. It wasn't anything substantial for the meaning of the text, which again just shows to me that's one of my answers that I'd like to give to a Mormon who says the Bible is corrupted. I say, how could mm-hmm. how could you say that the Bible is corrupted? Yeah. Look look at the, just that piece of evidence right there. I think if I was a Mormon, that would really cause me to think twice about that assertion that Scripture can't be trusted. Right. Exactly. All right, so number one, Mormons believe the Bible is insufficient. Number two, Mormons believe that the Bible is corrupted. And so therefore that leads to number three, this final thing, is that Mormons believe that we need continuing revelation from modern-day prophets. Right, and we touched on this already in a number of our previous points uh, in this episode. Uh, but they believe that the church is led by a modern-day prophet who hears from God, speaks for God, receives direct revelation from God. So one of the more recent prophets, Spencer W. Kimball, says, Again, we testify to the world that revelation continues and that the vaults and files of the church contain these revelations which come month to month and day to day. Okay, so where do they keep them somewhere, Ra? Like, like you said, they haven't added to <coughs> the Pearl of Great Price or the Doctrine and Covenants since the early 1900s, but do they, do they keep these things literally in a vault somewhere? How does this work for the average Mormon? Yeah, well, the, if they do, they're not necessarily public information, 
So a couple things. They believe that the leaders of the Mormon Church, the First Presidency, who is led by the Prophet, and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles meet together regularly to intercede with God and ask for direction to lead the Church. And so uh, it's, it's not really clear how they experience that direction, mm. whether, they, whether it's a subjective feeling, whether like Jesus appears in the middle of them and starts to dictate. No, that's never been really revealed. And so the proceedings of those internal conversations are not, are not public. Now, but occasionally, when something rises to the level of uh, such a, uh, maybe a, a certain significance, then they'll issue a statement. For example, in 1978, when um, Spencer W. Kimball, the prophet at the time, reversed the Mormons' practice of, of not giving priesthood to males of African descent. So blacks could not have the priesthood, and in 1978 they could because of a revelation. Mm. And um, so God changed His God, mind about that. Yeah, God, God, God revealed new information to a new age or whatever, and um, and He did it through the prophet. He did it through the prophet. Okay. So the prophet uh, released a statement, and that statement suddenly became the policy and doctrine of the church. Okay, but it didn't. It, but it didn't make it. It came out as a pro- proclamation or a statement, but yeah. it didn't make it into one of the four standard works. It did not. Okay, right. So now, did, the, did, the other way. Let me just say the other way that uh, people would experience this in the uh, in the Elias Church is that um, twice a year at general conference, the the general authorities, the prophet speaks and gives an address, and so in that address he may address some changes or some new emphasis or some. So, uh, and they would see that as being prophetic and being guided by where God is guiding their church. So, uh, for example, when the current prophet, Russell M. Nelson, um, made some changes to the structure of Sunday meetings, made some changes to the way they do a ministry in the Mormon church, some other things, that that Mormons received that as being the fruit of divine revelation, continuing revelation. Okay, so let, let 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 me try to push for some clarification, because I can hear some Christians out there asking this question, well, how's that different from what we do, right? If So you're saying that the leadership of the church is making a proclamation or preaching some important messages, but it's not rising to the level of getting into the standard works. It's not going into the four standard works. It's not changing scripture for them. So Ross, isn't that basically what we do in the Christian church? A pastor gets up there and speaks with a certain amount of authority, but we're not changing the Bible. We're not adding a 67th book of the Bible. How is it different? Yeah, the difference is this, that, that we're speaking, when we get up and speak, we're, we're speaking from the authority of the Bible itself, and we're explaining or applying what the Bible says. Should be, anyway. Shouldn't go beyond that. If we go beyond that, there's a, there's a problem. Um, and so I can get up and say, you know, the Bible says, love your neighbor. And here's one, here's a couple ways that that might look in our society today, but I'm never saying, God says this is how, exactly how that looks in our society today, or this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying this is what the Bible says, then we're going to try to break it down and explain it and make sense of it in our setting. So what the, what the LDS prophets are doing is saying, no, God told me, God said, and it's not just, you know, an impression that I might have received from God to go pray for someone, or something that's individual or personal. They're saying, this is God leading His Church. God told me, on behalf of all of you, that this is now how we're going to do it. This is now 
the official way because God spoke. Hmm. So I think there's a, a pretty significant difference there. Yeah, let me read something from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. And I want to apply this then to Mormon church, even to Christian church, right? Let's mm -hmm. apply this to yeah. everybody. It says there, Suppose there are prophets among you, or those who dream dreams about the future, and they promise you signs or miracles, and the predicted signs or miracles occur. If they then say, Come, let us worship other gods, gods you have not known before, do not listen to them. So that's really interesting, because essentially they're saying that the signs and the miracles did occur, and yet, yet he says, okay, he didn't, he didn't say they're false prophets or they're prophesying things that don't come true. He's got some other instructions for that. Yeah, he says, yeah. stone them, okay. So no, he says, no, let's say that they do even occur. He's still, it's just it's so powerful. He says, if these people who seem to be affirmed by their signs and wonders, if these, if these prophets try to get you to worship other gods, don't listen to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point because... You know, again, it's not about the experience. It's not about you know the uh, the demonstration of power. It's about the content. And so he's saying anything a, a prophet says that might lead you in a new direction from what God has already said, that's not legitimate. Mm. That ha he says that has to be ruled out. And he says don't listen to them, don't follow them. You, you got to reject it. All right, I've got one more question for you, Ross. Before we wrap this up, how do Mormons pick their prophet? So it, it seems like there's a lot of authority then. There's one prophet, right? Kind of right. like the Pope in the Catholic Church. Right. There, there aren't a bunch of prophets. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a hierarchy of leadership, and we'll, maybe we'll get into that in a, in a future episode. But it seems to me that it's pretty important. If, if Mormons believe that we need continuing revelation from modern-day prophets, and we can go back and look at all the prophets since the first one in the Mormon Church, Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. So the first one was Joseph Smith, the second one was Brigham Young, the third one was John Taylor. Okay. So we'll get into we'll, again, we'll get into the details later. But there's this long line of prophets. There's only ever one prophet at a time that speaks for for God to the Mormon Church. So how do they pick the prophet? Well, that's a great question, and ultimately the way it has worked out over time... Now, uh, Brigham Young was chosen in a u rather unique way, but ever since then, since um, 1845 or so, it's basically a matter of seniority. Whichever individual has been an apostle long enough, the longer than anybody else becomes the new prophet and revelator of the church. So, so they, have, they have 15 men who lead the church. They're all apostles, um, the 12 apostles and the three uh, first presidency. That You may have, be have become an apostle at age 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever it might have been, uh, coming out of probably a, some kind of a secular career. The current president of the church was a, a surgeon, a heart surgeon. He became an apostle sometime back in the day. I don't know when, but um, basically he outlived everybody else. Hmm. And, and so in seniority, um, he eventually, the, way, the church has always done this, and it's hard to conceive of it being different at this point, is that the senior apostle becomes the prophet and president of the church. Again, it's a lot of pressure. Seems like a lot of, a pressure-packed job for 
a prophet to speak for God and to have this responsibility to say, this is what God says now. Right. And it might be different. It might trump with what he said before. Yeah. And again, I, I think we should finish with this statement for everyone, whether you're a seeking Mormon, whether you're a, an evangelical Christian just trying to wrap your mind around this. Look, here's what we believe. If we want to know God's character and will, the Bible is perfectly reliable. It's sufficient. We don't need, we don't need anything else to clarify that for us or to change our mind. There's never going to be something added to it or taken away. The additional scriptures and revelations of Mormonism, we're going to find out as we continue in this series that those additional scriptures and revelations lead in a very different direction. Yeah. And we'll be sharing a few examples of that in the next three lessons. So again, if you want to talk about any of these conversations with a family, with a small group, with a mentor, maybe with a Mormon friend, we encourage you to find all this at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. And make sure to join us next week as we continue to talk about what Mormons believe. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.